Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. And good morning to you. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. You know, this is an exciting day um, here in the U.S., but in some parts of the world it's not so good. You know, I've just come to understand that in the Congo, 48 women raped every hour, sexual assault every minute. And in this program, we're going to talk to you about some of the things that you can do to help the ladies in the Congo that have experienced sexual assaults. And who we have on the phone with us today is Beth Ann Casperson. Good morning, Beth Ann. Good morning, Vernon. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on, and you're my hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you work for Equal Exchange, and I understand you're the person that makes sure that your products have quality. Yes, I'm the quality control manager. I've been with Equal Exchange for about 17 years, and essentially I oversee the quality of our products from the point of origin all the way through to the finished product to make sure that they taste great. Okay, from the point of, point of origin. And um, last week we had Rodney North on uh, from Equal Exchange, and he talked about double co-op. He called it double co-op, where you are buying from co-ops. That's where you where it starts from and then you all are a worker co-op and you all sell the product is that right yes yep that's right um and in a lot of cases we actually sell our products to consumer cooperatives as well so it might even be a triple triple co-op okay (laughs) so right now we are having you on talking about the co-op side of the double co-op side of you where you purchase from you're the person to make sure it goes from when you buy it the origin you said all the way through to where you sell it. And next week we're having the person on from Equal Exchange that's going to talk about more in-depth about Equal Exchange and how it works. So so the focus today is on the outside, how you get your products and how you make sure those products are quality. Great. Great. Okay. So how did you get into Equal Exchange and into co-ops? Well, it's interesting because I was a student at Wheaton College in North Massachusetts, um, and at the time they were serving Equal Exchange on campus, and they had a fellowship competition um, to send one of the students as a promotional activity to El Salvador um, for a 10-day trip to learn about co-ops. At the time, I I didn't know anything about co-ops. Um, you know, I grew up in a tiny town in Clinton, Connecticut, um, and so we didn't have co-ops. I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, and I won the contest, and I was an anthropology student, and I went to learn, and this is about two years after a very um, intense and devastating war in El Salvador. I went to learn about co-ops, um, coffee production, and what the co-op was doing um, to work um, internationally um, and get their product out into the market. And so that was really my first experience, you know, and at the time I was 20 years old, 
Um, and the structure of the producer co-op is a little different than, say, equal exchange of the worker co-op. Um, but it was a really enlightening experience. I came back not only with culture shock, um, but really wanting to understand how I could participate in, in, in the cooperative supply chain. Um, and so later on, um, when I was in college, I did my senior thesis on coffee, um, and it was a case study with Equal Exchange, so I got to learn more about Equal Exchange. And I was later hired as a sales representative, and that was in 1996. And when I first started, you know, we were probably about 20 people at okay. Equal Exchange. We were pretty small. And, um, you know, so over the years, over the last 20 years, or the last 18, 17 or 18 while I've been here, we've really done a lot around co-op education so that people understand what it means to be part of a co-op um, because many people just don't have that experience. Um, and it's been really amazing for me to be part of this co-op. Well, this is the reason that National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program. And Mr. Chuck Snyder, the president of NCB, wants people to understand what a co-op is. It's not very well known in the U.S. what a co-op is, and it's interesting that you found out about it in your undergrad studies. Mm -hmm. um, I went all the way and have two masters and didn't hear anything about it. Only 20 years ago I heard about it as I was managing uh, housing co-ops. I found out about uh, cooperatives, and I found that I really like this structure a lot. As a matter of fact, I love it. Um, so... 20 years, uh, 17 years. That makes you about 37 years old. Uh, almost. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little break in there. Um, I left Equal Exchange just for a short period um, to deal with some personal uh, stuff. Um, and I, I made my way back because I love the structure and I love our mission and what we do. Um, so I'm actually 40. Okay. <laughs> so um, you're still young. Um <laughs> The reason I call you my hero, because when I talked to Rodney North uh, several weeks ago when we were setting this up, he told me uh, that you were in the Congo at that time, and you'd been into several hot spots like El Salvador when they had the, the war. Uh, can you tell us about some of those? The, before the Congo, what, where, else, where else have you been that has been sort of fighting going on in some parts of the country? Well, um, you know, I work with a team of people, um, and as the quality manager, my goal is to work with our former co-ops on quality. And so that can mean everything from cupping, which is coffee tasting, through to quality audits for their processing mills. And so I've been, over the last, um, I became quality control manager in 2001, and I've traveled to most of our Latin American partners um, to do work with them. So every, everywhere from Colombia to, you know, to Mexico to El Salvador to Peru um, and to the Democratic Republic of Congo, of course, um, and Uganda and Ethiopia. So pretty much all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and many of those hot spots will, you know, I've been asked by some of our farmer partners in Peru, I would say it was in 2009, there was. Um, some hot activity happening, and they asked me not to come. They said, you know, it's a little bit dangerous right now, so it's not a good time. And the same happened a few years ago when I was going to Congo. They said, you know, things are moving and there are dark forces, as one of my colleagues put it, and so you, it's not a good time for you to travel. Um, but when you're traveling, no matter where you go, you always have to be careful, no mm -hmm. matter where you go mm -hmm. in the world, whether it's a war-torn area um, or somewhere where there is conflict. 
Um, and so it's just part of what we do, you know. Um, I think in my recent trip to uh, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, everyone was more concerned about Ebola than they were okay. <laughs> about the conflict um, and going there and doing that work um, and, and sort of seeing, hearing that, um, you know, and I had many people, many Congolese people say thank you for having the courage to come. There's so much media and so much press around Ebola. People are more afraid of that than what's really happening here on the ground. Hmm, that's very interesting. How, um, let, let's, let's go back and, and talk. I want to tell people what a, what a co-op is, and then we'll go from there. A, a co-op can be any business. Any business that you can think of could be a co-op. There's two major types. There's many types, but if it's owned by the employees, it's called a worker co-op, and equal exchange is owned by the, the workers. There's about 150 workers now, uh, employees. Yes. You, you talked about 20 when you started in 1983. Oh, no, you started in 1996. Yeah, 86 is when we were founded, and 96 is when I started. Okay. And there were 20 people when you started, and it's 150 now, and I think Rodney said 130 of those are, are owners. Are owners. There's, I think there's about 117 of us. Okay. So the figures are slightly lower. Okay. But still a big group. It's a big group, you know, and we work in um, three different offices, um, and we have some remote offices. So I'm located here in West Bridgewater, Mass. Um, we have an office in St. Paul, Minnesota, and one in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so we, we're spread out, but we do a really good job of keeping connected um, through staff meetings, through biweekly staff meetings. We have go-to meeting where people, you're waving at everyone on the video <laughs> screen, and a, a lot of visits. So... We're larger, but um, we're still doing our best to maintain um, our cooperativeness. <laughs> okay. And that is working together as a team, cooperating. Um, and so if, if it, you all are a worker co-op, and then if it's a co-op like the farmer co-ops that you buy your goods from, then a lot of times they come together and they, they will um, – well, no, a farmer co-op could be a producer co-op. Mm -hmm. Or they could be a purchasing co-op, but the other co-op is when mm, when people that use the products or services, uh, like a housing co-op then or or credit union, then it's called a consumer co-op. Okay, we got the definition down. So you all are a worker co-op, and um, and you work you buy your products from farmer co-ops. So what kind of um, arrangements do you have with the farmer co-ops? What kind of contract or agreements do you have with them? Well, just to sort of back up a little bit, um, okay. we do we only work with small farmer co-ops, um, and this is really the uh, the fundamental aspect of who Equal Exchange is. Um, you know, small farmers, um, especially in coffee and cocoa, um, make up about seventy percent of the world's supply, um, and so we were really founded as a way to connect consumers and producers through the cooperative model um, and really founded to combat the injustices of the food supply chain, which a lot of people back in 1986 had no idea where their food was coming from. Um, things have changed a lot in the last um, 28 years. And so, um, yeah, again, we're only working with small farmer co-ops. 
And a lot of, you know, in terms of the agreements we have with these groups, you know, we work with probably about 30 different farmer co-ops in coffee alone, um, probably in the range of 40 or 50 with all of our products. My specialty is in, in coffee. Um, but we really have a multidimensional approach to our work, and that really begins with people. And so when you ask what kinds of agreements do you have with farmers, every group is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Some farmer co-ops are, consist of 200 members. We work with co-ops that consist of more than 7,000. And in a place like Ethiopia, there are more than 85,000 farmers. So there are very different types and sizes of co-ops. Um, but our approach, again, really is about the people. And there's, I would say there's two primary aspects to that. One is the social aspect. You know, we are a for-profit business that was founded on fair trade principles. So making sure that farmers are paid a fair price, um, working with them over the long term, and those are really important aspects of who we are. But when I'm talking about the social aspects, I'm talking about like building these long-term relationships. And really, you know, like any relationship, I talk to farmers all the time, and I always say, you know, we are in a relationship. We're working together. We're together in the good and the bad, and you have to work through issues when there are issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we do this, these kinds of relationships that we have, many of them are for um, 15 or 20 years, um, pretty old relationships. So right now, our director of purchasing, um, Todd Casperson, who also happens to be my husband, is okay. in Colombia. <laughs> He's in Colombia working with our farmer partners. Um, he might actually be on a plane on the way home, but he's there, and we've been working with our Colombian partners in, in Caldas, Colombia, for 20 years. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary with them. And at the same time, our, our other green coffee buyer is in El Salvador um, at a, a cooperative called Las Colinas, and we've been working with them for more than 15 years. So when I talk about the social aspects, I really mean that that personal contact where, you know, the relationship is not just on paper. It's not just the business aspect. Mm-hmm. It really is about knowing people. Um, and those relationships, we've really spent a lot of time and energy to establish and really maintain. But, of course, the business, you know, without the business, we wouldn't be here as an organization. So I talk a lot with farmers about their quality has to be great because if their quality, if I go to sell their coffee in the market and the quality is not great, then consumers won't return. So when we talk about the business aspects, we're talking about creating these contractual agreements. And these are year, yearly contracts that are based on how much coffee they have to sell, how much coffee we would like to buy. Um, and there are these agreed upon quality standards. So, what does it mean? What are, what are the 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 what, what is it that you're trying to deliver on? What is the what does quality mean? And that's a big part of what I do mm-hmm. is actually communicating and working with people, um, specifically the quality personnel, to talk about what quality means. And we don't just say quality. Quality is a really big word for any any business. And so, what does it mean? And we have specific standards. Um, that are followed by, the, we follow the Specialty Coffee Association Standards of America. And we really do a, a good job of communicating what that is. Um, 
again, going back to the people piece, it really has to be about open communication, transparency, honesty, respect, all of the things that come with any relationship. You know, that's, we need to take a break here. Sure, sure. But um, the social aspect of that you're talking about is what I love about co-ops. It is, as a matter of fact, Chuck Snyder said on the program that it, co-ops are nothing but people helping people. And it's, that's the social aspect. But we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, please don't touch that dial. Uh, we're here with Beth and Casperson from Equal Exchange. 1450 WOL. Welcome back. This is Vernon Oaks, Everything Cooperative. We have Beth Ann Casperson from Equal Exchange, a worker co-op, on the line with us this morning, talking about quality and quality control with their co-op um, farm, farmers throughout the world. And they have fair trade, which was uh, a new concept to me, Beth Ann, when I first heard this about three or four uh, months ago. I know you all have been doing it for 20-some years. But fair, cha- uh, fair trade... And I guess that's why Equal Exchange has their name is trying to have things equal out. At least that's what it seems like to me. Uh, But it's given a fair price for the products. And that has not always been the case for smaller farmers. They get squeezed on the price side. So you are doing good work. Thank you. We're trying our best. Well, that's (laughs) – I really like what you're doing and and what you – the, the reason, your mission of, of helping these smaller farmers, and I understand there were three people that founded the, the business uh, in 1986. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, you have, do you know Papa Sin from Senegal? I, I know of, yes. He was on a program, and he said that um, co-ops are formed to solve a community problem, and if there was no community problem, then there would be no need for a co-op. And it sounds like your equal exchange was formed to give this fair trade, to give pricing to smaller farmers, co-ops, and smaller farmer co-ops band together so that they could buy what they needed together and get a better price and or have places where they could sell their products together. And I find that very, very interesting, and like that's another reason I like co-ops because it is people helping people. The social part that you're talking about is more social than than profit uh, aspect. Profit is needed, but that's not the main reason for being in business. So that you do have longer term uh, relationships that you talked about, and it's like how do we help each other in good times and in bad times? Uh, so yeah, I really like what you're doing. How do you set your price, though, when you say it has to be a fair price? Well, it's a, it's a great question around pricing. I mean, I think when – I really like what you're saying. Um, I think when you were chatting with Rodney last week around doing right by others, like we're doing this through business and being a socially responsible enterprise. You know, and that is one of the principles of cooper, um, cooperatives is the sixth principle, which is cooperation among, amongst cooperatives. Um, and so in terms of setting the price, you know, the fair trade model has existed for some time. Um, and for coffee in particular, it's an internationally traded commodity. So there are these price fluctuations that are based on speculators in the market, which can be really tough for small farmers to maneuver. 
Um, you know, one day the price is high because there's a threat of frost in Brazil and the coffee price spikes through the roof. Or the coffee market plummets because there's oversupply. And so small farmers are sort of at the mercy of that market, and that's a problem. And so even if they are organized into cooperatives, if you're at the mercy of the market, you still how are you ever going to get ahead? Mm-hmm. And so the fair price, fair trade price really is based on being a floor price that covers the cost of production and um, and and the business. And so that's actually essential to um, to what we do. And so having that price so that if the market plummets, then the farmers are protected. And in a lot of ways, that serves as an insurance policy. And for us, we we um, the vast majority of our coffee um, is certified organic um, and fair trade. And so our base minimum price, um, and this is for us and the way that we, we do fair trade, is $2.20 a pound. So if the market is lower than $2.20 a pound, we won't pay that. We'll always pay at least the floor price, and then we pay differentials on top of that that are based on quality and other factors. So, for example, today the coffee market's somewhere around $1.75. Okay, so we're already exceeding that from a market standpoint. So we'll but, make sure I get this. So the, today the market is $1.75, mm-hmm. and that's the sort of international market price. But yes. you pay two twenty base. Yes, sir. Okay. Right. And that's really important. Um, you know, for like I said, in the good times and the bad times, it's you know, we're we're with our farmer partners. You know, and we don't pay two twenty is the base, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's really just a place that um we use as a base, but we pay differentials on top of that again, based on quality and based on other factors. And so, you know, and it really depends on the country of origin and the asking price and the demands that they have um, with their buyers. Um, but it really, I mean, it, it helps our farmer partners tremendously, um, and it has been a successful model, you know. Um, and, and I'm specifically speaking about the New York seats so of the stock exchange um, and with green Arabica coffee, there are two different kinds of coffee. There's Arabica and Robusta. Mm-hmm. Um, and Arabica is seen as the, the higher quality, um, sweeter, cleaner cup of coffee. And so that's what we're, we're tra- what we're working with. How do you spell that, Arabica? <laughs> A-R-A-B-I-C-A. Okay. Arabica, yes. And, you know, for us, our systems for quality are very specific. Um, we're very transparent with our farmer partners. All of the information, all of, uh, all of our agreements um, and all of our decisions are in writing. And that way our farmer partners can understand what we're looking for um, because, again, the quality has to be great. If it's not great, people won't come back and buy it. And then we won't succeed as a business and they won't succeed as a business. So it has to be great. That's definitely an important aspect of pricing. I made an order, and I bought your Congo coffee. And I'm not a, I'm not a coffee drinker. I stopped co- drinking coffee maybe 30 years ago. I'm a tea drinker, so I, I, I got my tea, and I've tasted your tea. Matter of fact, I found out that I had some of your tea in my 
cupboard. I didn't even know be, before I even knew who Eco Exchange was. I had bought some at a co-op uh, oh, food market, yeah, and it's quite good. But I gave it to my I gave the coffee to my sister, and uh, I got I got the order the day before yesterday. It took about three days after I ordered it online, and um, it came in, and it was twelve dollars for. Is it in a pound? Is that a pound or it comes in? Yes, it's one pound. Okay. And uh, the report this morning was, uh, and she was, when she got it, she smelled it and said, oh, this is great. And she said she had a grinder. She grinded. She had it this morning, and she said it was wonderful. And it was a lot cheaper than when she buys it from some other places. I don't want to call your <laughs> your, <laughs> your competition out. <laughs> but... And she said it was as good, if not better, than the other places. But uh, she really, she was raving about it this morning to the point she said she's going to order some. Um, That's great. Now, what I want to what I want to talk to you about now, um, uh, and we'll have another break in a couple minutes here. But what I want to talk to you about is going from the original purchaser to my sister, or how did, how did the chan- channel of distribution happen? What what are the steps that you go through? So for us, um, you know, we have a variety of distribution channels. Um, one of the things that we are incredibly blessed with is a diverse clientele. I think there are a lot of different groups that that see our mission as a worker-owned co-op, as a fair trade business, working with small farmers, and they, they like that. Um, and organic, of course, I think that that's <clears throat> been an important aspect too. You know, and so we work with restaurants cafes, universities, a a variety of food service groups, you know, people who are serving coffee by the cup, Um, some in high-paced environments where people are moving through quickly and other other people are moving in, um, like, in a cafe where people sit and drink coffee. Um, We're also working with natural food stores and food cooperatives across the country. You know, we have national distribution um, where people are really attracted to our brand because of organic and, again, back to our, our mission. We're going to come back to this, Beth, and I've got to uh, stop you. Thank you. But we'll, okay. we'll stop and we'll come back in a minute. I'm really enjoying this conversation, and we'll come back and talk about the distribution channels. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to Everything Cooperative. This is Vernon Oaks. We have Beth Ann Casperson from Equal Exchange on the line. Equal Exchange is a worker co-op, and we're talking about the distribution channel going from small farmers, small farm cooperatives, all the way to the end user. And she was telling us about some of the end users that they are having. Um, Can you keep on with this conversation, Beth? Sure. You know, I had mentioned that we sell to restaurants and cafes. We work with natural food stores. Um, A big um, portion of our our client base is consumer cooperatives. Um, And so all over the country, not specifically in one area of the country. Um, Again, back to that principle six, you know, where or the sixth principle of cooperation amongst cooperatives. Um, I think people really see that as an a really important aspect of what they do. 
Um, we also have a, a few unique programs. One is that we work, uh, we have several faith-based partnerships um, where we're working with different religious organizations um, to sell our product either through their coffee hour and fundraisers, um, church fundraisers and such. And then we also have a fundraising program. So rather than have, um, you know, in school, my son, you know, he brings home these fundraising packages for selling a variety of things, you know, cookies or wrapping paper. And so I, it was probably around four or five years ago, um, we decided that we should try and offer our products as a fundraising activity to schools and give kids and, and parents and teachers an alternative um, and have them buy our products, um, which are organic and from small farmers. So those are a couple of the examples um, of places where you can find our product. You know, I looked at your 2013 annual report, and it talked about a middle school, and I think they sold $34,000 of your products, and they made twelve. I think those are the right numbers. They're somewhere in that range. But it was like only 40% of the students that participated at this middle school. So I want to tell a few schools that I've been working with about this process. Mm-hmm. And they did a, they did a, um, they didn't raise money every year. They raised money every three years, which I thought was also kind of neat. Um, so you, you get your product from the small farmer co-ops. Mm-hmm. And then where do they send? Do they send it to Massachusetts? Uh, you all process it or do you have somebody else that process it and packages it? Oh, no, we, we roast it. Um, and so we are, we play this unique role in the supply chain. Um, most coffee roasters um, don't import, and a lot of importers don't roast. But we do both of those things. Um, and we are founded in 86, as I had mentioned, and you know. Um, but as, you know, importing and really bringing raw product to the state, so bringing raw green coffee. And, you know, that's a, that. there are a whole set of standards that go along with that. You know, we don't just buy whatever coffee. And as I had mentioned earlier, we have these contractual agreements. Um, but what we do is we, we receive samples in advance, and these are representative samples, and we put it through a strict set of um, a full-on evaluation that looks at how does the green coffee look? What does it smell like? What are the what is the size of the green coffee? Um, how many? What number of imperfections are in the coffee? And we measure that against the stand our standards, and um, that's one aspect of our evaluation. And then we have a sensorial aspect, so we're actually roasting and cupping, which is the industry term for tasting. Um, the coffee, and we grade the coffee. We have a very talented staff um, here of people that taste the coffee, um, and we, we taste the coffee and we grade it on a 100-point scale, much like you would see wine or another product graded. Um, and then we base our decision on those two evaluations, whether we, we'd like to buy the product or not. And so that's, that's a big part of what I do in my, my daily job. And then once we, if we decide to accept that coffee, we send a full report so that it's very transparent about our evaluation and what we think. And then the coffee arrives um, in actually in the port of New Jersey. And so the coffee gets there, and we sample it again, and we put it through the same set of tests to make sure that it matches up to our quality needs and the contractual agreement. And so that's not, it doesn't stop there. We keep going. Um, you know, after the coffee, we accept it, we have it in-house, and then we roast it. 
And then any day, so Vernon, if you're ever up in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts, you can okay. come by at 11 o'clock yeah. any day of the week for what we call a production cupping. And so we roast every coffee roast. We, we take a sample from the roaster, and then we put it on a table the next day a coffee cupping for a coffee cupping, and we cup all of our roasts to taste test them and to make sure that they – Pass, pass what we want or, or the, the great product that we want to put out into the marketplace. And so this is sort of the last line of defense before the coffee goes out the door. And I always say, you know, fly, little birdies. I hope someone prepares you properly and takes care of you properly. It's sort of out of our hands at that point. Um, but that's where – that's sort of our supply chain. Um, and so a lot of people ask me, well, how do, how do the farmers know? How do – your farmer partners know what your expectations are. And so we do a lot of capacity building, um, you know, cupper trainings in the U.S. and quality trainings at Origin. Um, and we really, our, our approach has been this, this idea of training and empowering coffee cuppers at source where coffee is produced um, so that they know great coffee. And they know bad coffee. You have to know bad coffee as well. And so that's really been um, a big, a, a large part of my job over the last decade is to work with quality personnel. We have a program um, called Cooperation and Quality. It's an annual program. We just completed our ninth year um, where I was working with 10 different um, coffee cuppers, coffee tasters in Chiapas, Mexico. Um, for a week, and we worked together on roasting and cupping and sorting green coffee to talk about these standards and to make sure we're calibrated. And not only does it empower the coffee cuppers and the co-op, um, it helps us to get great coffee. And so it's another way that we're sort of helping to build capacity and supporting the co-ops um, in a way that's not just about um, of the business side of it. The business side is super important. Um, however, it's important to understand where where people need a little bit of extra help in capacity building. And I love, love that aspect of my job. So you are a um, sort of like a producer and in, in when you roast it and you are also a distributor. Um, mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me that you can do all of this with 150 people. I would have thought you would have had a much bigger staff than that to do all of this. But you also talked about the fifth principle of cooperative, and that is training. Uh, and Rodney talked about that a lot last week, that you are very big in training, and you you go out to train your your farmers and come all the way into training the people that that are, are working in the co-op, your employees. Um, cooperation and quality, I like that. Um, do you have any... Oh, the other thing I wanted to say from what you said was the first thing my sister did was smell the coffee. <laughs> I found that was the first thing she did was take it up and smell it. This is great. It smells wonderful. So um, when you go out and talk to people, what, what are some of the things, whether it's Mexico or Peru or the Congo, what are some of the things that the people say to you? In terms of um, our coffee quality or our model? Your model um, – are they thankful that you are there, that you are buying their products, that you're doing this oh, training? Yeah. 
Oh, yes. I, you know, and it spans the sort of um, – in each co-op there, you know, in each per coffee farming co-op, there's the, the management. So usually there's a general manager and staff members. Um, and usually the first thing I do is sit down with them um, before we do anything else, go into the field, visit with farmers. And during my recent visit to um, Sopakti, which is our farmer co-op partner in, um, in Democratic Republic of Congo, I sat down with them and I went through the equal exchange structure and how our business works. And they were fascinated. They, they were taking notes really fast. And I had told them about it before, but sometimes you have to hear things a few times. So I love to tell people the same story. Again, you know, they say seven times, seven different ways from seven different people. I was getting ready to say that. I do. It's a Stephen Covey saying. I love it. I still use it. It's an old sales saying, but I learned it from my sister. But I, I really believe it, you know, that you have to say things over because you might just hear it a little bit differently the second time. And so one of the, the, the aspects that they really liked and were really they're really thankful to hear about our model but was – about how our board does our rotation. Um, you know, our board consists of nine people, and LJ will get into this next week. Um, but we have every year there's a rotation of three of those seats. And so a lot of producer co-op boards actually rotate the whole board at the same time. And then everyone gets on the board, they're brand new, and they don't know, and it takes them a long time to learn mm-hmm. um, exactly how it works and so they they sat there and said, wow, that's really fascinating, you know, this idea of staggering terms. Well, we never really thought of that. Um, and so that was really interesting for me. Um, there was that piece um, of their, their learning. Many people are very thankful. You know, when I go out into the field, people love to hear sort of what we see. Um, you know, when I walk out in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo in particular, they have extremely low productivity on their farms. Um, and so there, and this is, has, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is there's, you know, ongoing conflict, um, and coffee hasn't really been celebrated for a long time in Congo because of this conflict and the poor infrastructure to actually get the coffee out of the country, um, amongst other things. And so I was on a farm and I just talked to a farmer about a couple of things I saw that maybe he should do different. And he was very thankful, and he said, thank you. And I said, I look forward to coming back next year or and in three years and in five years and seeing how you're doing. And so having that impact, you know, I'm not a trained agronomist. However, I do know when I see something that's going very wrong on a farm. Um, and so sharing that information with the farmers, they're extremely thankful. And then just lastly, you know, I feel like I really personally get a lot of satisfaction out of training coffee cuppers. And I spent um, uh, uh, some time with two cuppers in DRC. And that's coffee tasters. Coffee right? tasters, okay. yes. Yes. And so they, um, you know, and this is, I started, we started this project um, about two years ago where I helped, I helped the co-op actually find the cuppers. I we had 16 people over the course of three days, and I put them through a bunch of tests to figure out who had the, who had the sensory abilities, natural sensory abilities to be a coffee taster, but also was, you know, was quick a quick learner. So I gave them a day of classes, and then I had a few days of testing. And we came out of the process choosing two cuppers. 
Um, and so now two years later to see these guys um, really growing and blossoming in their role and watching um, the co-op, you know, sort of grow is really exciting, um, you know, and they actually, because of this one coffee taster, this one pupper, during the last harvest, he was able to identify a big problem in one of their lots. And it was because he was trained and he was because they had invested in a cupper. And so those are some of the things that um, people are really thankful for. I mean, training, if, I, I call it sort of the hot potato syndrome. You know, you should, you have a hot potato, you got to pass it along. That's how I see knowledge. Knowledge should be passed along. And so why should I keep it all for myself? I should be sharing it with anyone who will listen. Well, when I <laughs> go so to... When I go to co-op meetings and workshops and seminars, I find that the, the cooperators have that view, and everybody's giving information, whatever, it's, and it's, it's fun and it's exciting and it's enthusiastic, this, this passing on knowledge. Uh, but you don't necessarily see that in the capitalistic model because people want to hold on to it because they want to have the, the edge, if you will. But in the cooperative world, it works really, really well, passing knowledge. And that's the fifth principle and the main principle that I like. That's my number one principle is where people get knowledge. And that's one of my favorite aspects of equal exchange is I feel like I, you know, I, my whole professional life has been here. And I have grown up here professionally. And that is something that people, we, we talk, we have a very open system um, and being able to have that knowledge or being encouraged to go and get that knowledge and bring it back or give it to someone else has been a really rewarding aspect of my job. Okay, and we're going to take a break on that one, and we'll be right back talking to Beth Ann about equal exchange throughout the world. 1450 WOL. Vernon Oaks here talking with Beth Ann Casperson from Equal Exchange, who has a wonderful job from my view. Uh, she gets to help people throughout the world. Uh, she gets to travel the world. I called her my hero earlier because she goes into places that sometimes people won't go into because of Ebola or because there's fighting going on. But they're able to help smaller farmers uh, get their products where they have better products and they can you know, Beth Ann, I had a gentleman on. I was trying to think of his name through the break. He was from um, NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association. And he said a farmer told him that before he joined the co-op, he could not provide for his family for the whole year. And after he joined the co-op, he had enough food for his family for the year and some money left over. So he was able to create some wealth. Uh, and feed his family. And that, that was a major, 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 major difference. And when you're talking about smaller farmers, that can be the, the difference. Have you had anybody tell you anything like that? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, and every place is a little bit different. Um, you know, so really depending on uh, your productivity on your farm, as I had mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. you know, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the productivity is pretty low. Um, but with good productivity um, and a reasonable size piece of, of land, um, you definitely can do that. Um, I would say a few of the challenges that um, I've heard and seen is, you know, in places where, like, especially in East Africa, Ethiopia, Uganda, DRC, where 
farmers have really tiny plots of land, um, and their productivity is low. So it's a little more difficult to um, actually get super far ahead. Um, and in a place like Uganda, where they have a polygamous family structure, um, it can be really challenging. But I have heard so many success stories as well um, where people are able to provide for their family um, and send their kids to school. There's one farmer I do know, uh, this woman, Oliva Keshero, from um, from Uganda, from Gumatindo. She's from a, a primary society called Buginyanya. And she, um, her whole goal has been to grow coffee, to save money, to put her children through school. She has seven <laughs> children. And what she did as the, when the children were younger, is, and not all of them were in school, is she would save some of the money. And then her goal was to buy even more land, to plant more coffee, so that she could have this pot of money and be ready to send her kids to school. And that's what she's done. Um, you know, she has a very supportive husband. Um, and, I, you know, she's definitely one of the model farmers out there in the world and one of my heroes, one of the mm. people I look up to um, and see as not just a small farmer, but as a small business person um, with really a beautiful vision for what, what farming should be like and really is very open. Talk about sharing information. She says, send anybody. Bring them all to my farm. I will show them. They can stay with me. You know, she's that kind of personality that really has um, been infectious, I would say, in the cooperative where people are like, wow, I want to know what she's doing. Yes. Um, and it's really exciting. Well, you know, um, that brings another quote. At, at Greenbelt Homes right here in Greenbelt, Maryland, um, I saw a sign that said uh, cooperative gives people the tools they need to control their destiny. And that's what you just told me, that young lady, that lady with her husband, that's what they're doing. They're controlling their destiny, their children's destiny, and they're learning these tools by being in a cooperative. Um, it's fascinating, exciting. Again, that's why I love co-ops. Um, tell me uh, about the Congo, though. Um, in particular, we, I opened up by talking about the number of sexual assaults. Uh, so what are some of the things that you're doing there to combat uh, those problems? So unfortunately, with um, the DR Congo, uh, all you hear about in the media are horrible stories. Um, sexual violence is rampant in the DRC, um, sex slavery. But really, in a lot of ways, I think that you know those aren't just problems in the Congo. Sexual violence is an international problem. Domestic violence is a local problem. It's a yeah. problem all over the world. But it's just at a horrific rate. Um, in the Congo in particular. Um, and so it's a very mineral-rich country. You know, there are important minerals like tin, tantalum, and tungsten, which we call the three Ts. And they're found in electronics, like cell phones, laptop computers. Um, and so there's this vast mineral, it's a mineral-rich country. However, the infrastructure um, and there's a lack of commerce in, in DRC. And Sexual violence is rampant, um, and it's used as a tactic of war, and it's really used to destroy communities um, and break up families. Um, and so when we're talking about rape and sexual violence, we're not just talking about women. You know, it's children, it's older women, it's men. It's not just one group of people. Oh my God. Um, and so it's, it's a real problem. Um, and so... 
for us at Equal Exchange, you know, I didn't actually know as much about the problem um, five years ago, you know. And in 2011, um, the Pansy Foundation um, approached us to create a special blend of coffee to benefit their hospital called the Pansy Hospital in South Kivu um, in the eastern part of the DRC. And if you don't know who the Pansy Hospital is, they really have a, an incredible story. Um, they were founded and led by Dr. Dennis McQuaige, and he's this internationally recognized gynecologist. And he really provides this life-saving treatment to survivors of sexual violence. In fact, he was just awarded um, the 2014 um, Sakhar um, Prize for Freedom of Thought, um, which is awarded every year by the European Parliament. Um, and he's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. So um, he's, he's just an amazing person. And But this hospital, the Pansy Hospital, you know, it's operated for more than a decade, and every day there are more than, you know, between 250 and 300 women arriving um, for treatment, for injuries or complications that are due to rape. And so Pansy, um, Pansy Foundation USA started trying to figure out ways to engage their constituency and generate this income, and again, back to the fact that they had approached us and said, could we do this coffee? Um, they wanted to raise awareness about sexual violence in the DRC. Um, and, again, I didn't really know much, but once I started to learn about the violence, I got really upset, um, and I thought, we've got to do something. We've it's very upsetting. It's terrible. It's terrible, you know, and I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, and I think about all of these women, um, and I met many women when I was there at my recent during my recent visit. Um, you know, I met a six-year-old girl who was sexually assaulted, I met a 13-year-old who was pregnant from rape. I met a woman with AIDS because of rape. Um, you know, and this that was the first time I'd actually met someone with AIDS, and I realized, oh, my gosh, and not only was she assaulted, but then she ended up with a disease on top of it. So it's a horrific situation, but the hospital is doing this really important work to help. Um, but when we were approached by Pansy Foundation, we didn't have Congolese coffee. And so I had to, I went out and I sought out one of my colleagues that was doing work with a really great co-op that I mentioned earlier, Sopakti in South Kivu, um, and said, how, you know, how can we buy coffee so that I can support this hospital? Um, and the farmer co-op has, um, you know, about 5,200 members, so it's not tiny, um, but there's a good portion of them are women. Um, I think it's about 1,300 are women. Um, and really their aim, Sopakti, the, the farmer co-op, has their aim has been to bridge ethnic strife mm -hmm. um, and really produce high-quality coffee. And so we started importing it with our help, with help from um, uh, a, friend, uh, a friend and another company called Twin uh, Trading out of the U.K. And, you know, this, the, that has grown. Um, and so we started this prod product called the Congo Coffee Project. And so how it works is that every bag of coffee you buy through our web store, so you bought a bag, right, Vernon, mm -hmm. uh, and it was $12. So $2 from that sale goes to the Pansy Hospital. Um, specifically, the, the money is geared towards a program called, uh, or, yeah, an aftercare program at a place called Maison Dorcas, which is where women go to heal um, and they go to recover. And they look, they um, engage in different skill building activities, um, whether it's weaving, 
sewing, literacy. Um, and so the, our, the money that we've raised since 2011, we've raised um, more than $39,000. Fantastic. Now, let me. It's exciting. Can you tell them? We've got a couple minutes left. Can you tell them? I bought the pansy bag, too. So can you, and it's beautiful. It's green, white, and black. Can you tell them about that? Oh, it's so exciting because when I was there in 2012, they um, I was watching them make these bags, and I thought, well, we don't sell bags. You know, that's not our business. Our business is special <laughs> products. But how can I make this work? <laughs> and so we started importing them last year, and these are bags that are made by the survivors of sexual violence. And it provides them with a new skill set, and it is literally – packaging plastic that they're using. They weave it together so they don't need a sewing machine. Um, and so they weave them together, and they're really great. They're durable bags. They're colorful. Um, you could bring it to the grocery store or to the beach. And it's having an impact, you know, of the money. $5 from the bag um, goes straight to the woman. $5 goes into a savings account so that when they leave, they have a little pot of money to Please. take with them. We only have a minute, so I want to tell everybody out there, you can go to shop.equalexchange.coop, and if you put in a promotional code of VOAKS, then they'll give you a 10% off. And you can buy the bag. You can buy coffee, teas, cocoa. I've Everything I've eaten, I bought cashews. It's absolutely wonderful. This offer is only good one time, and it can't be combined with any other offer, and they've extended to these, uh, January 31st. Um, Thank you very much, Beth. The hour has gone. We've spent it. Thank you for the knowledge. I really enjoy it. And I look forward to meeting you and coming up to Massachusetts someday. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Have a great day, everybody. See you next Thursday. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com.